And we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. And while you're turning there, if you're like me and you have a short memory and repetition serves you well, let me give you a little bit of context on where we're at. Because if we jump right in, it's going to be confusing. So this book, the book of Ruth, uh, historically takes place in the nation of Israel. The ancient Near East Israel, about 3,000 years ago. And it's during the time of the Judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, it's a depressing book. I'll just be honest. Like, it's a depressing book because it's a picture of rebellion. The people, the chosen people of God who were brought by God out of Egypt and established in the promised land by God rebel against him. The time of the Judges, this period of time that we're going to talk about in the book of Ruth is characterized by rebellion, unfaithfulness, sin, and just God's wrath on the people. It's also characterized by sexual immorality. One of the hardest chapters in the whole Bible for me to read is Judges 19. It's just this egregious picture of sexual immorality that the people pursue. And the book, like Pastor Vic pointed out, the last verse of the last chapter in chapter 21 says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what resulted in rebellion, sin, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality. So that's the context for the book of Ruth and the people that we've been talking about. And so this story that we've been walking through centers around three main characters. We have Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And we'll talk about each of them. Uh, but I would describe them in the same way that Pastor Vic, did. They, Pastor Vic did. They are ordinary people who are living quiet, everyday lives. And we get to see how God works his purposes in and through them to accomplish good in their life and an even greater good that we'll get to next week, and an unimaginable good through the obedience and lives of ordinary people living everyday lives. So chapter one, if you remember, is, is characterized by tragedy and struggle and despair. Chapter one is tragedy, struggle, and despair. Elimelech uh, from Bethlehem is married to Naomi, and they have two sons. And because of famine, they travel about 70 miles down to the region of Moab to the southeast. And so think about this, 70 miles. Like, I, I was like, how far is 70 miles? It's my best guess based on the map of my Bible. It's like if we walk from here to Charlottesville, give or take. And they're walking because they have no food there's no food. That is struggle. That's like real struggle. I was a wrestler in high school. I, I have no experience with famine, but I, I used to cut weight. I don't know if any of you have gone a day or two without food. It is life-altering. I was a lousy wrestler in high school. I, was, well, I weighed about 150, but the only place I could wrestle on a team was 135, so I had to lose about 15 pounds every week. And I can remember just, it was the lowest point of my life, I think. I mean, I'll just be honest. I was a, a sophomore in high school. I would just draw pictures of food in class. <laughs> I still have it. I'll show you if you're interested. I colored it in. I put the price of what it would cost, and I drew all the drinks I wanted to, like soda. And, um, but just, we, it's easy to skip over that. I guess that's my point. There's famine. Like, this is real life struggle that you and I have probably never experienced. Certainly, I haven't experienced it, and it's life-altering. So that's where the story starts. And then they travel 70 miles to a historically hostile land. This is not a friendly place to go visit. This is Moab. But then there's a, there's a glimmer of hope. Naomi and Boaz, their two sons, they find Moabite wives. They get married. That's something to celebrate. And then after that struggle, tragedy strikes. Like Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Just let's just stop there for a moment. Like that's one of my biggest fears in life, that my spouse would die. And then to add to it, like her two sons, her entire family dies in a foreign land. Like, I, oh, the weight of that could make me cry right now. Imagine losing one of my children, her, both of her sons. And so she is in despair. Understandably, I, I can relate to that. And so what does she do? 
Naomi tells her two daughter-in-laws, look, I have nothing to offer you as a widow here in a foreign land. Just go back to your people. Find a husband, have a family, have a life. I, if you stay with me, it won't go well. And so Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, she says, okay, and weeping, and she goes back. But Ruth, Ruth doesn't go back. And one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, that gives us a picture of what sacrificial love looks like is here in Ruth chapter 1, uh, verse 16. I'm going to read it. This is Ruth's response to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she says, just, just go. Ruth says this, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth loves Naomi. And right there, she just said, I'm giving my life to support you. Whatever you need, I'm all in. That's powerful. And so what do the two ladies do? They start walking back 60, 70 miles back, just the two of them to Israel, to the region of Bethlehem, where they have, you know, some hope, they're hopeful they can get reestablished with their people, find some food, and just survive. This is, this is struggle, this is tragedy, this is despair, and this is survival. And so in chapter 2, we see that there's a glimmer of hope. Naomi realizes that there's a man there, a man named Boaz. He was related to her deceased husband, Elimelech. And Boaz has a field, and in that field there is wheat and barley, and there's a potential to get some food just to survive. And so they find the field... And Ruth gets to work. She starts gleaning the leftovers from the field. And she catches Boaz's attention. And he notices her and asks about her. And they're able to survive and get by for just a little bit. And there's a couple things I want to highlight here before we jump into chapter 3. How are these three people described in the first two chapters? What are some characteristics of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz? Let's start with Naomi. And I'm going to take this from the sermon. Uh, I believe it was the first week we talked about this. In the face of incredible hardship, like incredible hardship and tragedy and suffering and despair, how would we describe Naomi? Naomi does not give up or lie down in depression. She doesn't commit suicide. She doesn't hate God or lose her faith. She remains faithful to God, and she is a source of wise counsel for Ruth. So she continues to pour into Ruth, and we'll see more of that this morning. It's powerful. How would we describe Ruth? Well, Ruth embraces Yahweh, God is her God. Let's start there. Like she embraces the one true living God is her God. And from that commitment, she demonstrates sacrificial love to Naomi, her mother-in-law, at the expense of her own life. She puts aside her hopes and dreams, and she fully commits herself to caring for somebody else. That's a powerful concept. Not because she had to, but because she loved Naomi. And what that meant was manual labor all day, every day for months on end. So let's not forget that. She got to work all day, every day for months on end, manual labor just to survive. And then Boaz, how is he described in the first two chapters? He's a worthy man. Boaz is a worthy and godly man. And if you look at his interaction, almost every time Boaz speaks, he talks about the Lord. And we're going to get to that. He provides protection and he demonstrates kindness to these two ladies in a unique way, more than he was required to do. So that's where we're at as we jump into chapter 3. Hopefully that helps. So here, chapter 3, it's about 18 verses. And so if it's helpful to you, for me, you can kind of think about it in three interactions. Verse 1 through 5, it's Naomi and Ruth. They're interacting, and Naomi has a plan. She has a plan for their circumstances. And then 6 through 15, Ruth executes the plan. We're going to walk through that together. And then finally, in 16 through 18, Ruth comes back to Naomi and reports what happened. 
So that's kind of how the chapter is broken up this morning. We're going to walk through these briefly. And so as is the tradition of our church, would you stand with me, please? And if you have a Bible, I hope that you do. Would you read along with me? And we're not going to read all 18 verses. I'm going to do something just a little bit different. If you'll skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 12, we're going to read verses 12 and 13. I'll read them aloud. And this is Boaz speaking to Ruth after this interaction has taken place. And this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You all can have a seat. So I just want to make it clear up front, unless I get muddled and confusing in my sermon this morning, that the theme of Ruth is redemption. The theme of this story is the redemption of Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, and it points us to an even greater truth, an eternally, infinitely greater truth, that the purpose of our lives is to be redeemed by Christ through faith in him. That's what we're getting, that's what we're working towards here. If you remember nothing else, Ruth is about redemption, and you and I need to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. But before I get ahead of myself here, let's start in verse 1. So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and just kind of see how this unfolds. So then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, this is after months of working in the field and providing for Ruth, providing for her mother-in-law. Naomi says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Let me stop there. So after months of having Ruth care for her, where's, where's Naomi's head? What's she thinking about? Oh, she's thinking about Ruth. She wants to care for and serve and love Ruth. It's just a beautiful picture of what the Christian life looks like today or it should look like, it can look like. Like constantly thinking about the needs of other people and being willing to work to meet those needs. That's a picture of Naomi right now talking to Ruth. She's thinking about her. So often we get our basic needs met and we want more, and we want more. It's never satisfying, but this is a beautiful picture of love. She, they're, they're surviving, and she's thinking about how she can help out Ruth. And so let's continue. She has a plan, and this, I'm going to read the plan, and then we're going to talk about it. Uh, verse 3. She tells Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man, Boaz, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. In case you missed it, uh, Naomi identifies Boaz as a relative, a kinsman, someone who could redeem them. Naomi identifies Boaz as a potential husband for Ruth. It's a little bit hidden in the text, but that's the implication. But then she comes up with this plan. If you're scratching your head, I, had, I talked about this with one of my daughters this week. And she's like, Dad, that's creepy. Like, <laughs> don't ever ask me to do that. And I won't. All right. But she, she asks Ruth to wash up, put on a cloak, sneak up to the place where Boaz is at while he's working. Let nobody see you there. Look at where he goes to sleep at night. And then sneak up, uncover his feet, lay down, and see what happens. All right. That's a pretty bold plan. 
And I wish I could just go back to the Old Testament, like, okay, but, you know, some of my deep, you know, biblical knowledge, you know, basically in the Old Testament. If you're a Moabite widow and you're living with an Israelite widow and you move back and you meet, a, you know, a kinsman redeemer, this is what you do. And then we're going to walk through it. It's not in there. You, you won't find it. This is a unique situation. So before we say, like, it's prescriptive for us to just send out our daughters and have them do that, it's not. This is a unique situation. But there is some stuff we can know about to help make, a, make sense of it all. Let me turn my page and catch up. I went too far. Ruth loved, I'm sorry, Naomi loved Ruth. We've already established that. What do we know about Naomi? That she was faithful to God and she loved Ruth. We can know from the first two chapters of this book that it is not Naomi's goal to hurt Ruth or to, to send her out in the middle of the night in the harm's way to seduce Boaz in the way that wouldn't be honoring the God. We've already established she's a God-fearing woman who loves Ruth. She wouldn't just do that if she knew it was going to cost her harm or be um, unglorifying to God. All right? We know her character at least a little bit. Naomi also understands the law and the requirements, the responsibilities of Jewish Hebrew men, Jewish men. She knows that in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, it speaks to this idea of a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. I don't use that word. I was thinking about that on the drive here. I don't use the word kin or kinfolk. Uh, maybe you do. He's smiling. And they use that in Alabama. <laughs> this idea of a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer. So if you look at Deuteronomy 25 and, and then Leviticus 25, it talks about the rights or the responsibilities of Hebrew men, right? So if a woman lost her husband, in Israel, it was ex expected that the nearest brother would marry her and they would have kids and the family line would continue and she would be redeemed because apart from the family, they had really no hope of survival or little hope of survival. They were destitute. And if the nearest brother couldn't, then maybe an uncle or a cousin or the nearest relative. So it was understood in that culture, you take care of widows and the way you do that is you marry them as a, as a kinsman redeemer. Right? And, and Naomi understood that. So she's being very deliberate here her thought is she spent months watching Boaz and Ruth interact. Ruth is in Boaz's field. They've had dinner together. There's conversations taking place, and she gets a sense of Boaz's character. And so in that context, with that knowledge, she comes up with this plan, not to hurt Ruth, but to benefit Ruth and to see her redeemed for her life. Like she's working for Ruth's good in a way that wouldn't be logical to us if we didn't understand the background. What do we know about Ruth? She embraced God and she trusts Naomi completely. She embraced God and she trusts Naomi completely. Her response in verse five, look at it again. She says, after this plan is told to her, all that you say I will do. I don't know that that would be my response. She doesn't hesitate, at least not according to the text. She just says, all that you say I will do. She trusted her completely. She knew that Naomi was looking out for her good. And what do we know about Boaz here? Again, Boaz has established himself as a godly and a worthy man. And again, this is the time of the judges. We talked about this. There is rampant sexual immorality. Like it would be not, it wouldn't be uncommon or unheard of for many men to be committing sexual immorality. In a situation like this with a woman in the cloak of darkness laying by your feet at night to be taken advantage of. But Naomi is confident that Boaz is a worthy and godly man. And he's already shown that he treats, treats people, his workers and Ruth righteously even though his culture is characterized by wickedness and sinful rebellion. So in that context, the plan's not as crazy as it might seem. And so Ruth says she's going to do it. Let's see what happens. Back to verse 6. 
So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Let me stop there. So Boaz works all day. So this threshing floor when they would, gosh, I, I'm hesitant to even talk about it because I'm not a farmer. Uh, but basically, uh, apart from where Boaz lived, there was a place where they could um, process the barley and it required uh, threshing and the chaff would blow away and they collect the grain and the barley. But because it was uh, remote, usually up on a hill where the wind would blow through and take the chaff away, they would stay the night there, the workers, in this case Boaz, to protect their, their grain and their barley. So it was a unique situation. It's not, some, it's not where he usually slept at night. And Naomi knew this. So he works all day. He has a great meal. He's tired and he falls fast asleep. He's sound asleep. And then here comes Ruth. She comes softly, uncovers his feet, and then she lays down. Just kind of imagine that for a second. Like she tiptoes in, she's got her cloak on, uncovers her feet, uncovers his feet and lays down and just kind of waits. And this is what happens. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and said, uh, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? I mean, that's kind of funny, I think. Like, he's sound asleep. Man, my feet are cold. Oh, there's a woman right there. Who are you? All right? That's, that, that's how I imagine this scene with the exclamation points in here. Like, who are you? It's dark. He knows, tell it's a woman, probably because she had anointed herself. And he's like, that, that's not a man smell. All right? So who are you? And what does she say? She goes off script here a little bit. Because what did Naomi tell her to do? Just wait. And she goes off script a little bit. And this is what she says. Um, verse 9. Uh, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So if you remember last week in chapter 2, there was some similar language used when Boaz meets Ruth for the first time. He speaks a blessing over her. So flip a page back in your Bibles if you have one and look at the, chapter 2, verse 12. When Boaz meets Ruth, he speaks a blessing over her, and he says this in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, speaking about what she had done for her mother-in-law, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So don't miss it here. What is Ruth saying to Boaz in this interaction? You told me that you hope that the Lord provides for and protects me, and you spoke that blessing over me. I'm telling you that God is using you to accomplish that purpose. You're a redeemer, redeem me. That's what she's saying right now, unequivocally. She is, this is essentially a marriage proposal to Boaz at midnight on the threshing floor from Ruth to Boaz. It's pretty gutsy, it's bold, but the response shouldn't surprise us based on what we know about Boaz. So let's continue back in uh, chapter three here. This is Boaz's response. Mm, let me find it here. And he said in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. His response in the middle of the night after being startled by a woman and then she makes a marriage proposal to him is to talk about God. The first thing that comes out of his mouth, did you catch it in verse 10? He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's loving. He's compassionate. He listens to her. He speaks blessing over her. And he says, all that you have asked for, it will be done. He doesn't hesitate. 
He talks about the things that she already did for her her mother-in-law, and he tells her, don't be afraid. Like, I would imagine that Ruth would be trembling. This is just me speculating. Just trembling, not knowing what he might do or say. This is uncharacteristic. This is a normal thing that Moabite widows did in Israel, as best I can tell. He says, do not fear. All that you ask for, I will accomplish. It's powerful. And then we get into the verse we read uh, earlier this morning, standing up. The two verses there in verse 12. Boaz says to her, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. He acknowledges his position in society. He, he accepts responsibility for her request. I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. What do we do with that? This is important to consider right now. And I actually got this in conversation with Pastor Vic. Don't miss it. Like Boaz does the right thing in the right way. Like the right thing to do is to redeem Ruth based on Mosaic law and his, his status, his connection to Elimelech. But the way it worked is the closest relative, male relative, the brother or the uncle or the cousin was supposed to have the first right of refusal for redemption. And so it seems obvious to me that Boaz had considered this before. Like the way the conversation goes, I don't think this was a new thought to him to, to marry and redeem Ruth based on their months together. I kind of imagine like, like, yes, I will do it. But he doesn't get ahead of himself. He says, wait, we're going to do this the right way. There might be another redeemer. I know that there's a closer relative to you than me, and we're going to do this right. I'm going to be transparent, and I'm going to go make it known that this is my intention. But if he will redeem you, so be it. But then he says, if not, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. That's powerful. He does the right thing in the right way here. And I want to stop there just for a second and think about, like, talk about what, what could that look like in our lives, to do the right thing in the right way. And I just made a list here of, you know, of y'all. So kids, what does it look like to do the right thing in the right way? Mom asks you to do the dishes. <laughs> you know it's the right thing to do. You can get it done. Uh, or you can get it done and, and you hide some of those dishes or uh, the dishes are clean. You're like, oh, they're still dirty. You start the dishwasher again, right? So you can get out of that. But what does it look like to do the right thing in the right way? You know what I asked you to do. You know the intent behind that. Do the right thing in the right way. For students, I think about school. The right thing in school is to work hard and do your absolute best and, you know, make every effort to get good grades. But there's a right way to go about it. There's a right way to go about getting good grades and getting into college and accomplish what you'd like to accomplish in academics. And so often the pressure from most folks is to take shortcuts, to cheat, to do things that, that they're not in the right way. I, I felt that pressure in college. I had a class in naval engineering. Where we had to like do things with boats. I went to the Naval Academy and it was so hard. Like I got a D in that class. And I remember the pressure. I would travel with the wrestling team and I could come back and I could just copy somebody else's lab. And there were so many midshipmen in my class that the professor would never notice. But it doesn't, that doesn't please God. It doesn't produce blessing in my life. It doesn't produce blessing in your life. So students, like, think about what it looks like in school to do the right thing and then endeavor to do it in the right way. For young adults, I just think about relationships, especially for our singles. Like, it is right and good to want to pursue a relationship with the opposite sex and pursue marriage. But the pressure from culture is to do it in the wrong way, to jump ahead 
and to get physical when God is clearly stated, like he's reserved certain things for marriage. So let me just encourage you, like from, from the pulpit, like do the right thing, pursue relationship, but do it in the right way and honor God and receive his blessing. For parents, like for me, discipline just jumps off the page. I know, you know you have to discipline your kids. Like, yes, it is good and right to discipline your kids. But all too often, how does that look? I mean, I'll just be honest, like, I'm not always proud of the way in which I discipline my kids. It's not done with love and compassion and a, and a still quiet heart. It's done in anger, and it doesn't produce what God desires. So let me just encourage you, parents, with kids, it's hard. Like, I'm empathetic to discipline and to discipline in the right way, and it takes God's wisdom, but it's worth it, and you'll receive God's blessing on it. And finally, Christians, what does it look like to do things the right way. We are called to make the gospel known. That's one of our great commissions, to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. I would argue, if you ask most folks, and I, mean, I could be wrong, to who are not Christians to describe Christians, what, were some words, what are some words that they would use to describe Christians? Like condescending, judgmental, arrogant. They isolate themselves from other people. They're, I know you fill in the blank. Is that you when you share the gospel? Is that you when you go about your life? I mean, we are called in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give an answer, a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. But what's the second part of that passage? To do it with gentleness and respect. So yes, like make the gospel known, but like be humble, be compassionate, be gentle because you were lost and you've been found and your goal is to just be a witness to Christ. And, and sometimes it's your love, compassion, and gentleness and not your smartness that's gonna point people to Christ. In fact, it is not your smartness that's gonna point people to Christ. All right, so do the right thing in the right way. I think that's a great lesson that we get here from Boaz. Okay, back in verse 14. So he tells her to stay until the morning and she lay at his feet until the morning and arose before one could recognize another. So they get up early and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And then he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Boaz's goal right here was to protect Ruth, to send her away at midnight while it's dark out as a young single attractive woman in the time of the judges was a risky endeavor like his goal was to keep her safe but he did it in an honorable way it says she lay at his feet all night there's no indication here despite the culture around him that he did anything inappropriate with Ruth he, he, she's essentially his fiance or almost there's a connection here but he does things honorably he does his interaction with Ruth, Ruth is honorable and then his goal to talk to the nearest kinsman redeemer is honorable honorable and I just want to park there for a second how did how did Boaz prepare for that moment like how do you prepare for moments in your life where you face unexpected unanticipated temptation in your life whether it's sexual temptation or the temptation to be less than honorable in your work or your life or your parenting or whatever it is like it doesn't happen in the moment at least it doesn't happen for me like Boaz demonstrates a life commitment to godliness his ordinary everyday life. There's a commitment here to being godly. And so when he's woken up at midnight and he sees a beautiful woman at his feet, it's, it's natural for him to just do what's right and to speak blessing over her and to preserve her integrity. 
and then to do what's right and wait till the next day to make a decision. So this is just an encouragement for you and for me this morning. Like, you want to make good decisions in those moments that you can't anticipate where temptation will come? Like, dig into this word. Live in Christian community and make your life like Boaz, where you are just fixed on God's promises and purposes for your life, like all the time, not every now and again, not just on Sundays, all the time. I think about Colossians 3. My buddy Paul back there challenged me to memorize Colossians 3 a couple years ago. And it begins with this. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, see at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What's the imperative? Like set your mind on God, on Christ, his purposes for your life all the time. Whatever you're doing, and it, it finishes in verse 17, and it, I, I want to see if I can remember it now, a lot of pressure. Um, and, and everything that you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And everything that you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that look like? You are just in love with Christ and his purposes for your life, and it fills every interaction, every apology when you mess up, every opportunity to listen to someone else even if you disagree with them and express love and compassion and disagreement. So like Boaz, let me just encourage you, if you're going to be prepared for temptations and challenges in your life and they're going to come, you've experienced them, like fix your minds on things that are above, not just now, but throughout the week and find people in your life that will encourage you to do the same. And so that's been instrumental for me as I look around this crowd of folks who just challenge me every day to fix my mind on things that are above. So find people in your life who will challenge you and encourage you and even rebuke you when you're getting off track to do that. Like, it is what the local church does. Like, that's why we celebrate this. Like, people in my life are just essential. God is placed there to do that for me, and I'm so thankful for that. Let's wrap up the chapter here, the last three verses. So that interaction is over. The sun has not come up yet. Ruth makes it back home safely, and she, and Naomi's waiting for her. So let's see. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, so when Naomi came to, I'm sorry, Ruth came to Naomi, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I hope you caught it. There's some language here. Boaz tells Ruth, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. How did Ruth describe herself in chapter one? She said she was empty. She didn't reject God, but she was empty. And Boaz says, don't go empty-handed. Bring her fullness, not just the barley, the news that I'm gonna redeem you. Like you, that, that's, that's where the fullness comes from. The barley's great. I'm sure they had a big breakfast, but the real beauty is like, he said, I'm gonna redeem you. It's gonna happen if it, you're going to be redeemed. If not me, this other guy's going to do it. And she is full at that moment. God used Boaz and Ruth to fill the life of Naomi in a way she couldn't have expected. And she persisted after God in caring for Ruth. You see how it all comes together here. As we live ordinary, everyday lives in the pursuit of Christ and his purposes, God will work in ways that we can't even ask or imagine. So let me just exhort you, like, be steadfast. Sometimes it can just be overwhelming in like the heaviness of life, the, the routine and the burdens of life and the chaos to stay steadfast. But God is working and willing in you according to his good pleasure. So what do we do? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So keep after it. Like be encouraged by this story. So what do we do with all this? And I'll, and I'll wrap up here. 
What do we do with the events from chapter 3? Do we, do we encourage our daughters to pursue engagement in this way? Nope, please don't. That is not what this is teaching. Please don't do that. But there are two essential truths, points of application that I'd love for you to walk away from the sermon with. And the first is this. Our biggest need in life is redemption. Our biggest need in this life is redemption. I, I haven't defined that term for you yet. There's a number of ways to look at redemption, but I would offer two, two definitions. And the first is this. Redemption is the release from bondage through the payment of a price. Biblical redemption is the release from bondage through the payment of a price. What are we in bondage to? All of us, sin. We are all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. What's the penalty for sin? Romans 6.23. Wages of sin is death. Physical death and eternal death. Separation from God for eternity think about that for a moment that's where we're at apart from redemption and you can't redeem yourself I can't redeem myself I can't I can't do enough good things to be right with God and so what has God done for us while we were sinners Christ died for us he died and then he rose from the dead don't forget that part like Christ died and then he rose from the dead in his resurrection he extends grace grace to cover our sins and we don't have to earn it we just receive it so redemption is your biggest need. And if you've not been redeemed this morning, like Pastor Vic prayed, I would just implore you to consider your deepest need. Now for uh, Ruth and Naomi, they didn't have to wonder what their need was. It's pretty apparent, like they're desperate. And so they knew they needed to be redeemed. And so Ruth's plan, um, Naomi's plan for Ruth was, was a product of their, their known need. They, they, they needed redemption desperately, but so many of us don't see our need for redemption in society today. Don't say, I don't need Jesus. I got this. You don't got this. You don't got this. One day you'll stand before the living God and give an account for your life. And without Christ, you stand condemned. So be redeemed by faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then he will work in and through you to accomplish his purposes. The second point of application, and I'll finish here, is that God uses, the Lord uses godly people to accomplish his purposes in the lives of others. The, God, the Lord uses godly people to accomplish his purposes for redemption in the lives of people. Another definition of redemption is to bring new life. God, through Boaz, brought new life to Ruth and Naomi. He brought new life through Boaz and his faithfulness to God. But we don't have this practice of kinsman, redeemer, marriage, thankfully. So what does this look like for us? Like, how do we bring new life to other people as Christians? Practically, there's a lot of answers to this question. And I see a lot of that going on in the church. And last week, I mean, Travis was talking about our deacon ministry and all that we long to do to bring new life to the people in this church and around this church. But the most powerful example that I've seen of bringing new life to other people in this local church it's our orphan care ministry. And it's almost 100% I'm going to cry, so just bear with me. Our orphan care ministry, and what I mean by that, that's not this, like, organization, but the people who make up our orphan care ministry. Think about that. In our communities right now, there are children who are abandoned, neglected, abused, and they have no one in foster care across the country who need to be placed with a family. They have no one. And I've watched families, like multiple families in this little congregation who are super busy, and they're just living quiet, everyday lives. That's how they would describe themselves. I think about Nick and Alyssa Bolting. 
Hunter and Brittany Young, just most recently, these two families, like Hunter and Nick are busy. If you don't know them, they work busy jobs that requires long hours and some travel. Nick's traveling this morning. They're dangerous jobs. They're thankless jobs oftentimes. And their wives, Alyssa and Brittany, work tirelessly. They have little kids at home to love and support and care for their children and support their husband while he's gone, while they're gone all the time. And then they're leading in the church. They're already leading in this church. Think about that. Like, they're busy. That's, you're caring for your kids. Your husbands are working hard. And they, I mean, Nick and, and Hunter lead the young adult ministry with their wives, Brittany and Alyssa. Like, so after service, they're, they're leading young people, teaching them about Christ. And then a couple years ago for the Boltinks, and I guess about a year or so ago, they said, you know what? God's moving us to just open up our home for foster care and see what happens. Let's just see what God does through this. As we longed, we were redeemed by the blood of Christ and we longed to extend that redemption in practical, tangible ways to the people around us. And the best way we can see to do that in a real powerful way is to just open up our home. <laughs> My wife's reading a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I commend it to you. Like the gospel comes with a, we're gonna open our home to foster children and see what God does. The Boltings waited two years. They waited two years and they didn't stop what they were doing. They just continued in ministry and life and they got a call a couple weeks ago three-year-old girl in a hard situation. Can you take her in? We don't know how long it'll be. Can you just take her in your home? Yes. I mean, Nick came to my office like, bro, we got the call. I'm out. Let's pray. And we prayed at work and they brought her home. And then a few weeks later, they get a call. Her little baby brother who's in the hospital because of some hard situation, hard circumstances, needed a home. Can you take him too? Their kids are older. NJ and Emma are older now. They're, they brought a baby into the home. It's going through some tough stuff. Like, Alyssa's not sleeping. Why did they do that? Because they long to extend redemption and a picture of the gospel to the people around them in practical, tangible, costly ways that just speak the gospel in ways that sometimes our words just can't do. The words are necessary, but the lives are transformative. So like this orphan care ministry, if you're wondering like, what is God doing in my ordinary everyday life to transform and redeem people for the gospel? Let me implore you to consider orphan care. Oh, I, Justin, I, I don't really like kids. I'm sorry. Like they're in need. They're in desperately. I'm not in a I'm a student. I'm a single. I, I can't care for children right now. Yes, you can. I had a family reach out to me last week. They have four kids. They go to this church. She's a nurse. They got certified for foster care, but she feels overwhelmed with life. She works 12-hour shift work, and she keeps getting calls for babies in tough circumstances because of her unique um, abilities as a nurse. And she had to say no because she didn't think she can get the child care for her kids so she can go to the medical appointments and to the visitations with the biological parents. If you're a single or young adult, like, let me, let me just invite you right now. Like, we can step up and support this family. Like, empower them to bring home kids. And you just babysit their kids for a couple hours a few days a week. Families, you feel overwhelmed with life. And you're like, I can't do this. Like, I'm looking at Brittany and Hunter. I know how busy they are. Here's the beauty of this church. They got a little baby for two weeks and then they got another little baby right after that one went home with their um, relatives. And they don't know how long this baby, Brittany's pregnant with their third child. Do you think somebody's overwhelmed in this church? Like that, that's a lot. I can't even do it justice describing it. But what we have in this local body is an army of folks who walk through this in ways that they long to serve and support you. I can guarantee you that. Like there are enough folks in this church where if you feel a little tug on your heart to foster or adopt, there are an army of folks who will love and support you. So don't walk away from here. If you don't know where your ministry is to demonstrate God's redemption in powerful ways to other people, like social services is right there for Spotsylvania. You can walk there. 
where you have your visitations, we have a relationship with them. If you live in Stafford or Fredericksburg, we know, like, uh, the Whitesses have a wonderful relationship with Bejuar and Fredericksburg. We know the folks in Stafford. So this, this chapter was not about adoption. It's about redemption. But adoption and foster care is just a beautiful picture of redemption. It's happening in this church, and I would just encourage you to consider it. I, I can't think of a more powerful ministry where we're at right now in this community than orphan care. And if finances are a burden, talk to me. We will figure that out. We're not going to let money stop it if you're thinking about adoption. The book of Ruth is about redemption. It's about the redemption of Jesus Christ and how God uses us as ambassadors of Christ to extend his love and our care for and commitment to the people around us, redeeming their lives for things that matter. So I would just urge you this morning to consider these two truths and how they might radically change your life for things that matter. All right, you can put away your stuff. I'll close this up with some prayer. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we love you. And Jenner was right. As the deer pants for the water, our souls long for more of you. And we acknowledge from everlasting to everlasting that you are God. And help us just to be still and know this truth that you are God. And our greatest need in life is for redemption. So I pray for anybody who's here watching who has not been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And for the rest of us, that you would just compel us, just compel us to live lives in sacrificial obedience, sacrificial obedience to pursue other people, to pursue their redemption in practical, tangible ways and commit to caring for them with all that we got. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray, and we pray together, amen, amen.